The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. It's an absolutely beautiful day here in Philadelphia, a little bit warm, but we will take it. Um, we are going to have a, a wonderful show this afternoon. I have two women waiting in the wings for us uh, to talk to, and the first is our own Tish Squilero. Again, if you're just tuning into the show for the first time, Tish, Tish excuse me, is CEO and founder of Candor Consulting. She is CEO of The Roadmap and also the author of Head Trash 1 and 2. Um, just before I bring Tish on, I want to give a quick reminder uh, for all of you to follow us on our social media pages to stay in the loop. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Women to Watch Media. And you can always find us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two watch.net. Um, also, if you're listening and you'd like to call in with questions for either Tish or our guest this afternoon, you can reach us at 888-329-3306. And following Tish's segment, uh, we have a very special guest waiting to join us. Her name is Elizabeth McCourt, and Elizabeth is the president of McCourt Leadership. So let's get started with Tish. Welcome to the show, Tish. Hey, Susan. How are you? I'm in Philly today, so I am thinking the weather is a little warmer than I like it. It is. It's a little warm. Fortunately, we can jump indoors anywhere and, and get some AC. Yes. So you, I understand, are going to be talking to us this afternoon about uh, paranoia, which is, of course, one of the um, traits that you you outline in your books, Head Trash 1 and 2, and, you know, what that quality can do to um, a leader in particular or to a workplace and an environment. Yes, paranoia is one of the seven uh, emotions that we reference in Head Trash. Uh, one, it gets confused sometimes with insecurity. And we did cover insecurity uh, a couple months ago, where insecurity are those negative thoughts that you have about yourself. So it's the noise and your talkings that are making you feel not worthy. Paranoia is different. It's about you thinking everyone's talking about you. So it gives you this feeling of mistrust. It gives you this feeling that everyone's out to get you, almost like a victim uh, is the feeling of someone who's paranoid. I had a quick question for you. Do, you. do you, In the work that you've done, do you think that paranoia is something that people – um, you know, it's kind of part of their DNA and they're born that way, or, or does a life circumstance come about that, um, you know, kind of uh, shapes that in them later? Well, it's a great question. And, I, you know, I can only go by what I've observed working with uh, individuals for over 20 years. There is a yeah. sense of your background and your childhood and your, your life kind of stems who you are. And all these emotions produce behaviors. 
So if someone throughout their childhood into their young adulthood started to feel like they're a victim and they always think people are out to get them, it could be something because people were always trying to hurt them, or it could be that they just feel that way because they have a protection not to get hurt. Mm. So do I think we form these opinions about ourselves over time? And as we say in Head Trash, you know, these emotions are not negative or unhealthy until we make them become more powerful than us. So the natural paranoia is all in us where, you know, I get worried myself if someone, you know, is looking at me funny, what could they be saying? Or if I'm up against in competition, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I'm never going to get where I need because they're going to sabotage it. I mean, there's always ways to look at things where you have that pinge of that emotion. Mm-hmm. But when it crosses the line and becomes head trash, it's when you actually believe it and you then root out of it and you develop your, your, your thinking from it. You know, if I've had a feeling that way, I certainly don't make it get the best of me. But someone who suffers from it as a head trash is that they can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. They constantly think someone's in their way. They constantly think someone's out to get them. You know, in the book, I tell a funny story where someone received an excellent note back from someone thanking them for what a great job they did. And they wanted to compliment them by, you know, sending them something special. And the young lady says, what do you think they mean by that? I said, I think they're complimenting you and sending you something special. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's where you look at everything and what you see is not what you get. And one of the ways to work through it is you have to ask yourself, am I being rational? You know, could everyone be talking about me? Mm-hmm. Or if someone were going to sabotage me, why? What do they have against me? So you have to start to bring yourself back to reality because it's very easy to listen to yourself and make excuses for yourself why you can't commit why you don't have trust with others, why you don't share. And some of the, re- the, the results of someone with paranoid as a head trash is they're alone. Mm-hmm. They don't trust others. They don't have the ability to engage and form relationships because they always think that that's not really what you mean or what you're saying today won't be what you say tomorrow. And it could be mostly draining for those around you. So, you know, head trash too really focuses on others head trash where head trash one focused on you know, do i have these emotions getting the best of me well the second book was really for those looking to see how does it impact people around me and paranoia could be an emotionally draining relationship mm. if you constantly have to tell someone yes you're good yes i like working with you yes i love you you know it gets very hard on that other person because you can't please them they never feel like what you're saying is the truth Right, and and there's constant misinterpretation, I guess. You know, it just like your story, um, that can be really difficult if someone is always take if they're taking any circumstance and misinterpreting it, um, and putting it onto themselves as something negative. Can you can you describe the difference, Tish, between fear and paranoia? In, you know, and sure. what that so, looks like in people. Sure. Now, fear is the is the emotion that makes you think that there's so many things that can go wrong, it's better to do nothing. And that's more about an activity. Okay. So that's more about taking a chance or making a decision or committing to a relationship or rolling out something new at your company. Fear will stop you and make you immobilize to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Paranoia never even allows you to think about engaging, uh, socializing with someone. They may take chances, but they'll never collaborate. They'll never trust someone else. They work in a very isolated way where people with fear are not isolated. They collaborate. They just don't like making tough choices because they're afraid that they'll be wrong. Paranoid just feels that if they're right or wrong, does it matter? You're out to get me anyway. Mm. Okay. What does someone say to a colleague or coworker 
um, that has these paranoid emotions? What can they say to them that will help uh, better the relationship in their, you know, in, in the office? And, you know, coaching or managing someone who's paranoid is probably one of the most challenging um, th- th- things to do because they really first have to believe in you and trust you. So the first thing that person wants to do is try to get that person to have trust in them. And, you know, trust is earned, so there are things you have to do to make that person believe in you. Some of it is just asking straightforward questions like, you know, why do you think someone would do that to you? Why do you think my feedback isn't positive? What makes you think I have something behind that email that's congratulating you? What have I done that makes you feel that way? So you almost start to get their mind working on, wait a minute, I don't know why I feel that way. Well, you haven't done anything. You almost have to bring them out of the, you know, the, the fog that they're, that they're living with. Mm-hmm. Also, if they're afraid to commit or trust you, you have to ask why. What, what have I done that has made you feel as if I've misled you? I'd like to take a chance with you not to make that happen. Why don't we you know, try some? And as, as the coach or the mentor or even the manager, do one or two things discreetly that allow them to see that you are not hurting them that you did set them up for success. And then you have to show them where that was what took place. This did not hurt you. So those are the things you need to do more visibly for people with paranoid is to consistently be very routine about showing the trust or that, that you have their back or that you're supportive of them. And why it's grueling is sometimes you can keep doing this and there isn't much you can actually think, is it worth it? Right? So if you have somebody who's that needy, Mm. You may not be able to fix that as one person. It might be deeper than that. Right. Um, and lastly, if someone's listening and they actually have these emotions themselves, or is there a tip or two you can leave them with um, that they could, you know, start practicing today to not have those emotions? Sure. And one of the things is to first figure out why don't I want to share? Why am I feeling that everyone talks about me? What is it that they'd be saying? You really have to ask yourself some questions and rationalize again. So it's a matter of bringing reality back in because they're really working outside of reality. So you have to ask yourself, why do I think that? What makes me feel that they're going to do that? This person has never done this to me. Why would I think they'd be doing that now? You have to put some concrete evidence around what they're thinking, and that's the best way to start. If I had that, is to say, well, why do I say that about them? They've never hurt me before. Mm-hmm. Why do I think that email has more to it than what it says? And be comfortable with that. I guess it always comes back to self, more self-awareness. or We can't have too much self-awareness, I should say. Well, it's the start, right? Yeah, I mean, right. if we know where point. we land, I mean, the, the whole purpose for Head Trash was not to cure or fix was to make people aware that these things exist. Mm -hmm. They're in all of us, so we're in good company. But look what happens when we're not paying attention. And that was really, you know, our view of having these books done is to put that mirror up and say, see, these are some of the things going on. You need to take a closer look. Right. That's great. Great advice, as always, Tish. And, again, the the book can be found at Head Trash 911, correct? Yes, our website. Yep. Yep. You can also take a free online index if you've not – looked into this and you want to see if you have some of these emotions impeding your decision making, Head Trash 911 includes an index, no cost, takes about 10 minutes, and immediately you'll get a sense of out of the seven, paranoia being one of them, where do, you, where do the emotions fall that might be causing you some challenge? Mm-hmm. I love those kind of tests, you know, those personality tests, because again, I just think you can't know too much about yourself. It helps on, on so many levels. 
Sometimes we don't like what we see, but at least we get to see it so we can fix it. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Okay, that's uh, that's all for today, Tish. Thanks so much. I always love having you on the show and always leaves me with something to think about. Um, next month, I guess, do you know what you'll be discussing next month yet? I think next month is arrogance. Okay, all right. Well, I'm sure we don't know any of those, but no. we can make them up. <laughs> all right, thanks so much, Tish. Uh, Tish, have a good week. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, okay, so now we're going to bring on our guest this afternoon. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, her name is Elizabeth McCourt, and Elizabeth is the president of McCourt Leadership Group. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks, Susan. Happy to be on the show. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm, I'm very glad to have you. Are you calling, let's see, are you in New York this afternoon? I am in New York in okay. West Hampton on the end of Long Island. And how is it out there? I'm guessing beautiful. Yes, it's a beautiful day. It's a little bit warm, but like you said, I'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. So I'm excited to talk to you. And when I was doing my research for the show and, and reading over your bio, um, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was what an eclectic um, life you've had so far, I'll say. <laughs> Um, it's it's really interesting, and um, I, I know that you grew up in, in East Hampton, New York, and the oldest of four children. Um, your dad was a teacher, a math teacher, and uh, your mom was a stay-at-home mom. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about those growing up years. It seems to me that you had uh, quite a wonderful relationship, in particular with your dad. He's, he seemed to have a lot of influence on you and your life. Um, so talk about those years growing up. Uh, before before college. Oh, sure. Yeah, and East Hampton is, let's say, some regular people live out here, too. You know, it's the, it's the vacation spot for the rich and famous, and then those of us who live out here year-round. And it was a very small-town upbringing. Um, my dad was both uh, a teacher and a coach, and he was my coach for my youth soccer league, and um, played sports with my brother and my other two sisters. And I I tried very hard to, you know, get away from living out here because it was it was so small. It's one of those little towns. It's beautiful and a great place to be. And, of course, everyone knows everyone's business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried, I tried very hard when I was choosing college and other things to get away. And wouldn't you know, I landed right back where I started, just about, <laughs> about 30 minutes away. Well, it's always interesting. You know, the grass is always greener, they say, right? And I know people who are That's not true. from that area would, would imagine it's the most wonderful place to live and, and grow up. And, um, and people probably move there for that very reason. That's true. I mean, it is a great place to grow up. It's, um, there's, it's sort of, it's quiet, you know, back, especially back when I grew up, it was much quieter than it is now. And of course you have the beach. So the beach is always something that was a regular part of your life in the summertime. And I can't really say anything bad. There are absolutely worse places to grow up. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, I, I did have a wonderful relationship with my dad too. So that was actually something that was really important to me and inspired me to be where I am today, of course. Yeah. Well, I know you were, you quite well-rounded you you know you mentioned um sports and or or coaching i should say but um you were involved in sports and theater and uh, student government um you were surfer is that right and you still surf today i do i it's funny i was a surf watcher growing up and i learned how to surf about 
oh, about five or six years ago, and it, it actually makes you feel like a kid again. So I love it. I don't know why I didn't do it when I was a kid. Well, I, I have such respect for you for doing that later in life. To me, it would be one of the scariest things to learn as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> Had to serve. Um, so um, tell me about your years in high school. And um, just to give the listeners a, a little bit of background, again, you, you are the president of, of your own leadership um, company today, but you uh, studied finance in school. You went on to become an attorney. Um, you've done a lot of writing. And, of course, uh, something that we'll talk about later in the show is a TED Talk that you gave that is is really personal um, and, and a piece of your story that I think is something that probably shapes a lot of what you do today. Um, when you were in high school, were your, tell me what your aspirations were then and what some of the struggle, personal struggles you were having at that time. Well, it's interesting because when I started high school, I was very, uh, very, very shy. And my uncle... Um, invited an exchange student to live with us from the Dominican Republic. And he said, uh, she's going to live with us for a year. And they said, okay, Elizabeth, now she's going to live in your room and, you know, introduce her to everyone and make friends. And I thought, oh, my God, I am so shy. It's hard enough for me to do it by myself. How am I going to do it for somebody else? So I actually taught myself to, uh, I pretended not to be so shy and, the more I pretended, the more it felt like myself. And um, so that was one of the sort of the, one of the tricks I used. And I was very involved in sports um, and theater. I wasn't a great athlete, but I was always, I was one of sportsmanship award type athlete. I was always um, cheering and very much a part of the team. And I was even captain of my track team in the end. But, um, and I thought actually that I would do something I think when I was in, in high school, I thought theater was my passion and my dream, but I'm also very practical, and my parents encouraged me, you know, maybe try some student government or you're really good at math, so try go that track. And, I, you know, I listened, and mm-hmm. as, as happens when you're, when you're 16 years yes, old. right. That's the track you do. Yes. Everyone else has the answers except for you is what we think. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me, it's when you talked about, um, it sounds like you really challenged yourself to do the things that you were afraid to do. And I love when you said, you know, you pretended because that was what I'll say is pulling an Amy Cuddy, (laughs) faking it until you make it. Oh, yeah. Right? That's true. I do. I love Amy Cuddy. And you're absolutely right. What she says resonates. It's true. You have to, you have to just give it a try. Right. Well, it, yeah, it yeah, takes, that's, yeah, that's that, you know, when you dig deep and you get the, the courage to do that, it's easy to sit back and say, I don't have the ability, but um, to to do that, be, being comfortable with uncomfortable, I guess, something a guest of mine exactly. said last week. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so very true to really be, if, I would say to people, if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, you're probably on the right track. Mm. That's a great reminder. So, and I do practice it myself. I, you know, in all that I do, I, you know, I I'm, I'm kind of scrap. I call myself scrappy because I was not, I was not very big. I was kind of a skinny kid. So, you know, being in sports was kind of tough for me sometimes because I, I had asthma and I was a little bit small. But I, I was scrappy, so I had that, you know. And I had my dad. It kind of giving me a push to, you know, you just you fall down, you get back up, and you, you know, you forge ahead. 
Right. Now, you went on to um, University of Maryland and received your, your finance degree. And um, I, I'm guessing, you know, upon graduation, um, your first job out was this assistant analyst with Morgan Stanley. W- when you took that job and you, and you were pursuing that, um, were you still in that mindset of this is what I should be doing, what I'm supposed to be doing, or were you kind of, uh, you know, actually excited about it and thinking this was going to be your path? You know, it's funny because during the time that I graduated from college, a lot of people weren't getting jobs. So I was thrilled that I managed to score that job at Morgan Stanley. I thought it was just such an impressive name and firm, and I just thought that it was going to catapult me to where I wanted to go. Where where that was, I didn't know, but I thought it was a great uh, stepping stone for me, and that's what probably was the most exciting thing about the job. And I understand, you know, at some point you realized it, it really it wasn't resonating with you or it wasn't um, a good fit, as you said. What was it about the job that, that was not a good fit for you? I think that, interesting, I, I immediately didn't, the job wasn't for me. I knew that almost right away. Mm-hmm. I think my ego was probably a little bit bruised because I hadn't gone to an Ivy League school and I was working under some people that had gone to Ivy League schools and reminded me often that I hadn't gone to one. Mm. And so that environment is not where I I tend to thrive. Yeah. But I I knew that the, you know, I think the numbers and the the spreadsheets and the office time that I was doing just wasn't wasn't very exciting. I mean, it's good to have a, a first job and doesn't mean you're going to be there for 40 years. I always tell kids that. Yeah. So do you, feel, do you feel it was more the culture or, or the work itself? Um, I think a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I didn't really feel like I fit in. Not that I always feel like you have to fit in because sometimes I don't, but I think for me that that job, I, I think I wasn't really ready to eat that humble pie, and I didn't like the job enough to eat, to eat it. Right, okay. And how old were you at that time, I guess in your early 20s? Yeah, I think I was 20, I must have been 21 years old. Mm-hmm. So young. You know, it, it's funny. When we're 21, we think we're we're grown up an adult, but we're still very young at that age. True, true. Um, t- tell me what precipitated your decision to then go to law school. Was there, was there an experience where, you know, or something that happened that uh, brought that about, or was it something you had thought about for a while? I had a teacher when I was getting my business degree in undergrad, and I just thought he was fantastic. I loved – it was a business law class that I was required to take, but he completely inspired me. I loved the material. I loved learning about the cases, and I also thought that being a professor might be something I'd want to do or – a trial lawyer, because then, in a way, I get to use my theater experience, but in the courtroom. So I thought it might be a perfect match for both my academic mind and my creative personality. So that that really did inspire it. And I and I also knew I probably needed more education if I needed if I wanted to get more of a leg up. I needed more than my undergraduate degree. 
So I, I read a story that I just loved, and I think it speaks a lot about you and also um, your ability to, to challenge yourself. Um, you were, um, when you decided to go to Loyola, um, you called a woman. Her name was Ruth Musgrave from the Center for Wildlife Law in New Mexico. And yeah. something piqued your interest about um, that, that center, and um, it led to your studying environmental law. Um, the fact that you, you know, picked up the phone and spoke to her, you, you, you learned about her. And what, tell me what led to that. What led to that phone call? I actually read an article in a magazine um, after my, it was my first year of law school or during maybe the, yeah, but after my first year, I think I read an article in a magazine about her and I just thought what she was doing was incredibly exciting that she could take the legal work and help, help animals. It was the Center for Wildlife Law and they were doing some very progressive work in the wildlife law field and not they're one of two maybe there's more now but at the time there weren't very many organizations that were focused on wildlife law and I said I'll, I'll volunteer for my Christmas holiday and work for free and and she said yes and and then I ended up loving it and she was just a tremendous mentor and uh, helped me out while I was there and helped me get in to do my final year of law school out at New Mexico. And what would you say was the greatest lesson you learned from that experience? The greatest lesson is just take a chance. I, I read an article about her, and I sent her a note and called her up, and what was the worst thing that could have happened? She would No response would have been the worst thing, but the best thing is that she, uh, she responded to it. So it's, it's worthwhile to just take a chance. Um, you, one of the things that, you know, we'll be talking about throughout the show, um, and it, it really stems from your TED Talk, um, or a part of it, I should say, was this kind of searching for, uh, you know, we use the phrase a lot, you know, people are searching for themselves, kind of seeking where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing. All along this time, Elizabeth, I'm wondering if, you were feeling this sense of I'm, I'm searching. I'm, I'm still searching for where I belong, where my gifts would best be suited. Were you feeling that at, at while you were going through uh, University of Maryland and then through law school and then taking a chance at this Center for Wildlife? Was this a, a time of, of your searching, I'll say? Oh, I think absolutely. I think a part of it was really – when you're young, you're really trying to find out where your place is, mm -hmm. what you're really good at, uh, where you can, you know, you can certainly make a living and make an impact in the world. And so that certainly was a, very much a part of my process when I was, you know, when I was doing this investigation and I was making these choices, because both I, personally yeah. and, and professionally. Right, right. And I would say, and, me, and tell me if you agree with this, that some, you know, that seeking uh, being a seeker, sometimes it starts at a very, very young age, and sometimes it often it comes later in life. As we get older and we mature, we're, we're really ser searching for more meaningful um, experiences. What was the case for you? For me, I think I was always uh, a seeker. 
and always interested in new experiences and new and new people and and being uncomfortable and trying new things. So for me, it's been a part of my DNA. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you. For others, I see other people that I coach that have just come to this realization at a later point in life, mm-hmm. which is a thrill to watch someone do that too. Right, and I, I think, we, you know, as, as we age and mature, we see or we're yearning more for the um, – we see the importance of that, having more of a meaningful life rather than just the day-to-day, uh, you know, earning a paycheck and, and getting by. Uh, but either way, if you come to it, I would say, you know, in your lifetime, it's a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I say to my clients and, and myself, there's certainly there's, there's the practical stuff. You have to pay your bills. But then, That's of course, right. there's the dream and the, the vision of what you want to do. And can you merge them or – do one, you know, do it part-time, you know, do it part-time, whatever it is for you. Right, right. Listen, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk about your TED Talk. We'll Great. be We'll be Thanks, right back. Susan. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I'm joined this afternoon by Elizabeth McCourt, and Elizabeth is the president of McCourt Leadership Group. Uh, just before the break, Elizabeth, we were, um, you know, talking a little bit about meaning and and um, finding our, our purpose and, and things that we should be doing in life. Um, I think you probably had an aha moment that led to a very special TED Talk for you, and I wonder if you can tell the listeners about that. Oh, absolutely. I am a member of Toastmasters, and I, I did this, I did a speech called A Tiny Speech, Two Minutes, to, called Why You Should Spill Your Secrets. And then I got an opportunity. Something crossed my Facebook page that my alma mater, Sunny Stony Brook, was looking for, for speakers. And I thought, this could be a TED Talk. This, this could be a TED Talk. And so I, um, I put my, my material together, and then I was uh, – got accepted to go on that TEDx stage at Stony Brook, which is absolute thrill. Mm-hmm. 
that that's really a you know puts you on the hot seat, doesn't it? Oh, it really does because it's I it's it's really funny. It was almost serendipity. I had put a little I had put a little note in my wallet about three to four months before someday I'm going to do a TED talk. And mm-hmm. so when the opportunity floated by, I thought this is uncanny. I have to do that. So, but it is a lot of pressure because you really want to do a, a really good job. Now, with the topic you, you spoke about was an incident that you had back in grade school as a young girl. Was that always the topic when, when you wrote that note to yourself? Was that the topic you had always thought about uh, speaking on? You know what? I, I don't know. I, I don't think I had a topic at that time. Okay. But I knew that watching TED Talks, I was so inspired by so many talks, and I thought, gosh, I know I have something to say. And so, interestingly... All of my speeches at Toastmasters seem to be on that inspirational, motivational topic. It's really my thing. And mm-hmm. so it was, I think it wasn't um, a fluke that that ended up being my topic for the talk. Well, I think it speaks to how strongly, or, or how powerful, I should say, a moment in the life of a young person um, can have a strong effect and really stay with you. Um, why don't you tell the yeah. listeners what that you know what what happened in that classroom that day? Sure, it's part of my my TED talk. It's it's funny because um, when you were talking before, it's interesting how you can feel self conscious about it, something and have your you know your your headspace be junked up with something. And mine was, I had a health teacher in a room through full of seventh graders tell everyone that they were attractive except for me. Yeah. And it really knocked, just knocked me off my game. My, my confidence really took a blow. Mm-hmm. And being very, very shy, that really wasn't, wasn't what I needed. It made me even shyer and more uncomfortable. And, and the fact that I had been bullied as well, it made it, uh, I guess it, was a, it wasn't my favorite year. Let's put it that way. It was a very uncomfortable year. <laughs> Well, and my gosh, seventh grade, you know, I think any, any girl can think back to seventh grade. That is such a, it's a tough time on many levels, certainly emotionally, oh, right? It is. It's so tough. And I thought when I was preparing for this talk and, you know, I was nervous, I thought, you know, if I can just, if I can impact one young gal and make her feel like she's not alone, then I've done. Then I've done my job. Then, then the talk is a success. And I really focused on that in my preparation. You, you know what I find ironic? Uh, today we we try very hard to give the messaging to young women that it's really more important um, what they do and what they accomplish and and how they help others than it is their appearance. And yet, in that moment for you, and I and I, if I remember correctly, the teacher talked about you being smart, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was I was smart and nice, and you I were thought, smart and nice. Gosh, that really, <laughs> that really stinks. That really stinks. Horrible, I don't want to be smart and nice. Right, right. I I think there's irony in that because you know we just um, it really should be the most important thing. But the the truth is we live in a visual world, you know, and um, yeah. so appearance is is with us all day long, every day. True. And let's face it, seventh graders can be very mean. Right. They can. <laughs> Kids can be very, very mean. So obviously you, let me ask you this. It, it, um, 
it had an effect on you. Does it still, or have you fully embraced it and and no longer let it um, dictate, you know, your your choices and and some of the things you do in life? Well, I think I, when I first I, I first wrote it in an essay in two thousand and six, so I've been processing it a, a long time, and I will say that I I don't feel like I did. I don't. I mean, no one actually believes me when I tell them I used to be shy. They laugh at me because I'm not a very shy person. I'm very outgoing and um, seemingly fearless. But I always have, I do have a little Achilles heel, like many do, I think, that sometimes my confidence isn't what it should be. And so I need to always force myself to be a little uncomfortable. So it's not not a bad Achilles heel that's preventing me from doing things mm-hmm. but I'm I'm very aware that that can hold me back and I try and work to overcome that so and that's a that's a very human thing right I think we all um, even even leadership coaches like yourself will have those moments tell me what you say to yourself in those moments what's kind of your pep talk that helps you rise above let's see my pep talk I well, I know it's not true. I know I feel like it's sort of it's the head junk. It's that sabotaging voice in your head that tells you lies. Mm-hmm. And so it's really about when I for myself and for my clients, it's recognizing that you've got that junk in your head and it's not true. And you are a good person and you are smart and what you have to say is worth it. So stop trying to figure out what everyone else is thinking. And just feel good about what you're doing. So I think that's most of my mantra is to really be myself and feel good about what I'm doing and not worry about other people. And I guess even if you're not feeling confident in the moment, do it anyway, right? Pretend you are. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Fake it till you make it. That's right. (laughs) I I think you make it again. Yeah. I I love that because only you and your head know you're faking it. Everyone else thinks you're really pulling it off. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, you think I, I wasn't nervous giving the TED Talk? I, I was, but when I stepped on that stage, I wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. I think that's it's it's kind of simple. It's a simple phrase, but I think it's really good advice. Um, and 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 I think the more you're the more you do that, you're practicing it. Um, hopefully, the confidence will build. That's right. I always say you've got to be resilience is really one of the most important things that you can build. It for is. Yourself. It is. Um, another uh, experience you had in your lifetime that I was very fascinated with was your decision to just kind of pick up and go um, and travel to, as you said, find yourself again. And um, uh, I guess a few days um, after your 30th birthday, or was it on your 30th birthday, you decided to to take a trip? You, I did. It yeah. was midnight of my 30th birthday. Okay. And uh, you went. Yeah, my father had. Go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. And my father had passed away. Yes. And I had moved. I had been a trial lawyer in New Mexico and had moved home for the year to be with him before he died. And it was kind of an excruciating long death with cancer. Mm. Um, he was very strong, so it it was very elongated, let's say. So it it was. I don't know if it's quick death is easier or long death. I think they're both. They both have their challenges but I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do and I had I had met my husband but I was grieving I was 
not doing work that I was really wanted to be doing. And I said, I just need to travel because when I travel, I am truly myself because all those things fall away and you just have to take care of yourself. And I knew if I did that, that I would get back to the core of myself and be a better, I'd be better to deal with both my life and other people when I came back. And so that's exactly what I did. I booked an around the world ticket. They used to have them in the back of the New York times. And I called one of them and put in a bunch of stops that I thought I really wanted to go to. And I, two weeks later I was on the plane. Wow. All by yourself, right? All by myself. So I know you went to Asia and Thailand and India and Bali. Yes. What, what, um, what did you find there? What did you learn about yourself? Oh, gosh. I said, you just took me back. I thought, oh, gosh, when I was there, I remembered how strong I was and how resilient I was. And I also connected with amazing, amazing people and was able to just really develop these cool relationships. Some were short, some are long. I'm still in touch with a few. But I'm looking at a picture now of these three Australian guys that I trekked with for 28 days in Annapurna and how they were just like brothers. And it was just important for me to get that physical strength, which contributed to my inner strength. You know, it's so often, isn't it, that, um, meeting strangers or meeting new people um, and having conversations that lead you to, you know, some kind of an awareness about yourself. Yes, it's very, very true. They they see you for who you are. I always say when, when I was in when I was looking for my trekking partners in Kathmandu, I could almost tell immediately um, what kind of person it was and could I be with them on a trail. And I just happened to meet some wonderful, wonderful people. And the the couple people that we met that I thought mm, they're not the right person, um, I didn't end up trekking with them. It was really about the their constitution, their moral value, the honesty and integrity of the people that I met. And you can really see that very clearly um, when you're you're just with a backpack and you're staying at a little hotel. Right. Let me ask you, did you see, Elizabeth, any, I'm sure you met women um, abroad. Was there something that you noticed that is different about the women in those areas of the world um, their views on life that perhaps are different from women in the U.S. Oh, interesting. The, the travelers or the um, the people that I met from the countries? Yeah, the people that you met from the countries. Oh, what, I guess what I loved about it is, especially the women, they really wanted to, we re, the women really wanted to connect and have under you know, more understanding, like I was different and they were different and could we, could we connect in a way? I think in India that was particularly true. That interestingly, I actually ended up taking a lot of photos with families in India. They would just kind of bring me in and say, can we take a picture together? And it was just this kind of a wonderful thing to take a, a picture with an extended family in India mm -hmm. uh, while you're traipsing around. But women themselves just wanted to. I don't. I don't know if we're 
we're different per se, but I do believe that we have to respect other cultures. And I didn't know a lot about certain cultures, and I was really anxious to learn, and so that I could, I could sort of further my own learning, but give them a taste of, you know, what Western women do too. Right. Um, I want to uh, jump ahead and make sure that we talk about your work and the work that you're doing today um, as a coach and, and uh, owning this leadership company. And I understand that you, you kind of take an athletic approach to your coaching, I'll say. Can you tell me um, what that approach is and why you think that um, coaching in, in a, the professional arena um, can be very successful when you use techniques that athletic coaches use? Oh, sure. Can I say not everyone I work with is, you know, professional athlete, but I do think that if you can use some of the mental techniques that athletes use, you can parlay that into business, such as visualization, like what do you want to do? What's your vision for what you want to do? Athletes, really successful athletes do that all the time. They visualize their entire race. So you can do that with your business. Visualize where you want to be, what your pitfalls, and use that as a tool. And the tenacity it takes. I mean, oftentimes leaders have to be very tenacious, as you know, to be the most effective leaders that they can be. And in an athlete mindset, I mean, certainly we know that there you have the talent and then you have the tenacity. I mean, two athletes equal ability. Who will win? It's the one with the stronger mind that's going to win the race and the most tenacity, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy. I say easy, but it's it's something fun to work with And coaching. Okay. Tell me who your clients are. What types of people do you work with? I, I have an expertise in financial services, and a lot of those are – are type A personalities and also athletes. So I love working with people like that. I've been 17 years as a recruiter, and so I have a, a very good knowledge base for that business. And business owners in general, business owners who are athletes seem to be attractive to me as well because they have that, they have that mindset of how they want to succeed in their businesses because I'm not really – I said, not working with people who are failing in their businesses and in their life. I'm working with really high achieving individuals who want more. And it could be you know, more freedom, more money, um, something else they want to start. It's not, it's not about greed. It's the ambition to achieve in a way that makes an impact in the world. And I, I really love working with people like that. And do you have um, one um, particular client that you are most proud of, um, the outcome? <laughs> it's funny because I'm, I'm so proud of so many of them for what they achieve. It just really makes me smile what they say when we've – it's almost when they graduate, when they've completed their work and we sort of know that we're finished Yeah. and they've come so far from where they started. I think that's – that's really personally satisfying to see that someone could achieve what they wanted to achieve. And when they learn something about themselves or appreciate themselves, that really is, is quite special to me. And I guess you see that on an ongoing basis. Yes. 
I do. I whenever you know, whenever I don't know if I'm going to call it graduate your clients, but yeah, whenever when a client moves on, I'm always very very touched as to you know the impact that our our sessions have had. Is there is there a, tic, a particular time frame that that clients work with you? Is it over you know a six week period, an eight week period, or does it differ depending on the person and their business? It does differ. I, I will say that I tell people coaching is not a magic wand, so I can't say it's not consulting. I can't say, Susan, do this, this, and this, and you're, you'll be fabulous. Right. <laughs> so it's an ongoing process. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Yes. <laughs> Just tell me what to do. One, two, three. Right, right. So I say we work, we work together. I, say, I, I never tell someone what to do, but we work together to get what they want. But I will say it's probably a bit longer. It's it's not a couple of weeks. It might be a couple of months to really see some impact. And I, I have a few clients that I've worked with for longer. One I just, one that just uh, graduated was with me for over a year. And so the longer relationship, she just had a lot. She had a lot of things to work on, and it really depends. It depends on the client. It could be a couple of months. It could be a couple of years. It, it just all depends on what they're working on and. And what they want to get out of coaching, I mean, that's really the ultimate, is what, what are their goals and what, how do they want to change after the coaching sessions are done. Yeah. Now, l- let me ask you this. Do you see – I'm assuming you work with both men and women. And is there any co- commonality in your coaching where you see a difference between men and women and how they respond to your coaching? I mean, they're similar and they're different, of course, Mm -hmm. but maybe the difference is that I think women tend to be more open more quickly, Mm -hmm. and men might tend to be a little more reserved until, you know, I think you really have to dig in there. I mean, I do deal with high-achieving women, too, so it's not like I'm dealing with softies. Right. Um, They're really, you know, ambitious, ambitious people, but... It's just a matter of this. There's not that much of a difference, but I guess women are more likely to probably talk about their weaker points um, sooner mm-hmm. than a guy. And I would assume that, you know, very high-achieving, ambitious people sometimes have a tougher time um, admitting that there is a problem or, you know, something that they need to work on. Is that the case? Well, yes and no, because if someone comes to coaching, a lot of the times, there's two reasons. Certainly, their company can be recommending coaching, and that's one story, mm-hmm. where they've had um, a 360 assessment, and they have recommended coaching after that. That's a very different story than when someone comes to you. If someone comes to me, they're already recognizing that they have weaker points and they want to work on them. Right. So okay. it depends on the avenue of where, how they arrive. Now, you when do, someone comes to me, they, they need me. Yeah, right. So you're right. They've already admitted mm-hmm. it. I'm, I'm here because I, you know, I need some help with something. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you do coaching, but you also, um, you're an author, and you do a lot of writing. Is Are they equally um, fulfilling for you, both the coaching and the writing, or do you kind of prefer one over the other? I think they're, it's, they're different. I, I love them both. Um the writing is always much harder, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but the coaching does 
they feed each other in a way because I do write for um, uh, on Wall Street Magazine, and I often write about things that are re- related to coaching but not coaching because it's a magazine for advisors, the population that I work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my writing, I, I finished a novel that's being edited, so fingers crossed. I'll let you know when it's out and about. And I, I have was just going to ask project. about that. I thought, can I ask her about the book in development? <laughs> of course. Yeah, so you do. It's a nonfiction book? Actually, the one that's in development, well, the one that's in development is a nonfiction book, yes. Okay. And it's, uh, it's about leadership and failure. Okay. And And how even the smallest things we do for resiliency matter. There's we always think about these big things you need to do to be resilient, but, you know, we can really be resilient in our lives every day, and it's really about focusing on those moments and how they're important. What, you know what? Tell me what you think resiliency is. We, we talk a lot about resiliency on the show because I think, you know, it's so um, – it's something every single human being um, can really benefit from having because we're all going to face something difficult. We're all going to have an adversity, and it really is, you know, the difference between, I think, success and failure is your ability to work through it, you know, not let it keep you down and right. hold you back. Um, when you, That's exactly right. Yeah. When you talk about res- – what, what, what do you think resiliency is? I guess in the simplest terms, I think of resiliency as getting knocked down – Dusting off your knees and getting back up in the most simplest, simplest form. And whether that's um, having someone say um, no thanks and hanging up or whether that's having someone in your life pass away, that's often where we find a lot of resiliency is in death, mm-hmm. the ability to, to keep going when, um, when something really bad happens right. or, or illness. So I think it's really about, I don't want to say accepting, but in a way it is. It's sort of saying, okay, this happened. How can I take a step forward from that? How can I learn and how can I move forward? And that's, that's being resilient in its, its most simplest term, I think. And, uh, and I'll mention, um, Elizabeth, you actually lost both your mom and dad to cancer. Um, your dad, as you, yes. you spoke about, and then your mom um, diagnosed with cancer a few days after 9-11, which was such a horrific and awful time already, you know, for for the country. Tell me um, what – we just have a few minutes left. Talk, talk about what it was okay. that kind of helped you through that time in your life because I'm, I'm sure that was a very difficult time and left you with a lot of questions. Yeah, to have them die so suddenly was, I mean, like I said, my father was long and my mother was very quick. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm really a very positive person. So I had a blue day and I said to myself, okay, what do you choose? Do you choose, you choose to mope and be upset and just, you know, have everyone in your life die? Or do you choose to live and be positive and take what you learn from those people and, and try and make an impact, whoever it is that that passed away. I've had a lot of death in my life. And I decided then that I, I choose life. And maybe that's one of my mantras. I always, when I did a marathon, that, that was my mantra in the marathon. But you, we all have a choice. We have a choice to, you know, to not forge ahead and to let it get the best of us. Or we choose 
to take the positives and move forward. And so for me, that's, that's what I, I made a very deliberate choice to yeah. do that. You know, I love that because I, I just think that choosing, we, we do have the choice, you know, every day, all day long, we make choices. Mm-hmm. And maybe that, you know, maybe that's the definition of resilience, choosing to move forward in spite of really challenging times and adversity. I like that. I think that's a good one, Susan. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell me real quick, is there anything left on your bucket list? You know, you're, with the rock climbing and the surfing and the marathons oh. and, the, and the book writing. <laughs> My goodness, you make me look like I don't do anything. Is there any- oh, stop. <laughs> well, I will say... I'm going to say my my thing is I refuse to call it bucket list. I call it life list. What are the amazing things you're going to do in your life? Okay. I and like so, that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. So I, I, yeah. Well, you know what? We're at the end of the show. I hate to cut you off. That's all oh, the time we have, no, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving us the time to share your story. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure, Susan. Okay. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Have a great week.